0: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. You've found your way to Burned by Books, a podcast for obsessive readers and writers who love to talk about contemporary literature. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Wahini Bara's debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, begins with the story of the birth of the man who will become the most powerful tech CEO in the world. Narrated by his daughter, Athena, Rao's story begins as one of rags to riches, but is complicated by the global crises in privacy, democracy, and the fate of a world on fire. It is a story drawn from the literal memories of Rao, stored away and given to Athena as birthright, but that inheritance complicates everything she thinks she knows about the birth and ascension of her father. Vacillating between the textured locality of a southern Indian coconut plantation, inherited by a Dalit family from the most unlikely of benefactors, and Rao's migration to the U.S., first as a student and then eventually as a global magnate, the immortal king Rao plays effortlessly in both the global and the parochial. Set in the near future in which a global regime of shareholders has taken control of most national interests, Vara asks the reader questions that feel urgent to our own present dilemmas about the role of tech in our lives, the meaning of corporate bodies that take on the rights formally exclusive to humans, and the necessity of meeting our planet's needs before our own. Her prose is searing, funny, and beautiful and never afraid to risk the comparisons of a corporate dystopia and our own recognizable present. The Immortal King Rao entertains, even as it feels utterly vital and anxious. Wahini Vara has worked as a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal and as business editor for The New Yorker. This is her first novel. Welcome, Wahini, to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, It's such a pleasure to have you here, and I, I really, really love The Immortal King Rao and think it's an exceptional book for a lot of reasons. One of the things that is of immediate interest to me is the distinct narration voice, but also the way in which that narration is both decentered and focused by the novel. So we we focus in on the lineage, history and life of King Rao, but it's his daughter Athena that tells the story, embodying quite literally the memories of her father. She's figuratively growing out of his head like the Greek Athena, consuming his memories and ingesting a family bloodline. Why did you give her the reins of the story?
1: Uh, that's such a good question. So well stated. Um, I started this novel knowing that I wanted to write about a boy who is born on a coconut grove in the south of India in the 1950s who ends up uh, moving to the U.S. in the 1970s and starting a tech company, all of which is experience that I do not have any, you know, direct knowledge of. I My family is the lit on my dad's side. Um, he grew up on a coconut grove, like the one that's, um, that's described in the fictional universe of the novel. And I also am a I'm a tech reporter and so I've written about companies that were founded in the 1970s um, but beyond that like it, it, my 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 experience of all that is is secondary you know through stories mm-hmm. from my parents um through my coverage of these tech companies and so initially I was just looking for a way to tell the story that would feel kind of credible and authentic to me. Um, it felt really daunting to try to consider writing, for example, a first person novel from the perspective of King Rao himself, or like a close third person novel where I'm mm-hmm. trying to imagine mm-hmm. him even while writing in third person. And so really coming up with his daughter, Athena, to tell the story was like kind of a craft trick, a narrative yeah. trick for me to, to, to make me feel like I had the authority to be speaking in this voice. And so um, that's why I'm, I sort of invented invented her as a character, as a narrative voice.
0: Well, she's such a compelling voice, uh, and I'm interested, you, you mentioned that you were sort of leery of a close third person, a free and direct discourse, and I was thinking um, whether you were imagining there being a difference between what we think of as like Jane Austen's wonderful ironizing of the, narr- the third person narrator versus irony that's employed with Athena. Were you, were you imagining those as, as different
1: things? Yes. In that, you know, there's long sections of the book that you could read simply as being in the third person, right. Mm-hmm, um, reading mm-hmm. about King Rao and his family. And, you know, if you just picked up the book and flipped it to those pages, you might imagine that this is just a, you know, a, a sort of traditional third person person narration, but I did intend for Athena to sort of like always be there in the background and, um, as the as the the consciousness through which all these choices about what stories to tell and how to tell them um, is being filtered
0: yeah and that's uh, i want to get to later on how her uh, very human consciousness and filter of those stories might contrast to the algorithms filtering of of things but we'll come back to that the story of of Rao's birth begins with a conflicted marriage and the intermingling of birth and and death having children in the novel is compared multiple times to dying for some women in the narrative birth accompanies the death of career ambition ease of life for others it is literal death and childbirth could you talk about how the ambivalence of childbirth and child rearing fits into the drama of the novel
1: yes i was while the story is centered on King Rao in many ways, you know, he's the he's the the titular character of the book, he is responsible for a lot of what happens in the book. Um, I am also I'm sure, largely because I'm a female writer really interested in female experience, female experience of power. And this is a book that's really Mm -hmm. concerned with power. Um, And so I was interested in the writing and sort of like the, the way in which female power or lack thereof female agency or lack thereof, um, uh, is so tangled up with, um, with the the female body, right. Um, with the role of, um, of the female body as, um, as, uh, as, 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 as a childbearing role mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I, I guess it's must not be coincidental that I was, um, I was in the writing of the book. I started writing the book in 2009 and I finished it, you know, let's say in 2021, um, the year before it came out. Uh, I went from being in a place in my life where I was considering having a child and then I was pregnant and then I had my first child and then I was in this post um, partum phase and raising a child. He's now seven. Um, And so now that you raise it hadn't occurred to me before, but I think think just on a personal level, I was very consumed with these questions about the relationship between uh, motherhood and agency outside of that role as a parent.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that uh, that makes complete sense if, if it wasn't on your mind that would be a more interesting question <laughs> but that uh, gives a fascinating valence to think about that um, aspect of the novel from the, that question of power that you raise is such an important one in so many facets of the, the novel's driving story. I, I think this is a novel in part about caste and the Rouser Dalits, the lowest class in the Indian caste structure, which has been used to solidify and concretize certain kinds of power for a very long time. And they improbably inherit a coconut farm from a Brahmin and their rise to global power and influence is always coming with the additional weight of having to prove themselves at every turn and struggle against those power dynamics. But this well-defined caste system is used to reveal the ways in which caste operates everywhere. Could you describe how both kinds of caste are important to the novel?
1: Yes. So, you know, I think initially when I started writing this novel um the fact of King Rao being Dalit was I don't want to call it incidental because it was never that but it was it was foundational but it was foundational because that part of the story emerged emerged from um you know stories I'd heard from my parents about growing up in that part of India and in particular from from my dad and um members of my dad's my family on my dad's side about growing up on this coconut grove as a Dalit family in the 1950s and 60s. And so given that my starting point was that this character had to be Dalit. But I think as I continued to write, I started to understand the extent to which um, uh, power dynamics were in operation sort of in in all aspects of the book. And the book became over time a book about power dynamics. I was interested in trying to think through in the context of fiction, like what the relationship is between our nature as humans and power structures, social structures that we create. Um, And I didn't want to, you know, somebody asked me in another interview about what 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 we are to make of the fact that King Rao, who grows up as a Dalit person in the 20th century in India, what what are we to make of the fact that he moves to the U.S., starts a tech company, becomes very powerful, and then um, sort of replicates some of these dynamics in the world that he creates? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I I the reason I wanted. King Rao to replicate some of these dynamics is that I think it would be unrealistic for a character like King Rao um, with the particular characteristics that King Rao as a character has that um, that lead him to leave his family home, leave his family behind, go and seek an education, decide to start a company, have an interest in seeing that company grow. All of these things about him are things that make him somebody who would replicate certain dynamics there are other people on that family coconut grove when he's growing up who um who are very caste conscious who are very aware of class dynamics of caste dynamics of the way that social structures operate um which king himself is interested in in a sort of self serving way i think um and so i wanted to like particularize i think some of the these dynamics and show um and 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 not be too schematic in how power is um is is dealt with i wanted to show that somebody can be in one place um in, in one social context and then in another and i wanted to show how easy it is um to replicate dynamics once you found yourself on top right mm.
0: have you have you read uh Mohsen Hamid's how to get filthy rich in rising asia
1: I have not read that book yet. I'm aware of it, but I haven't read it.
0: It just is. It's a really nice counterpoint to that uh, to that idea of replicating those structures once when you make this. Improbable move from from bottom to top of the of the food chain.
1: I have to read that. People have recommended it to me.
0: It's wonderful. I mean, so much of his work is really wonderful and resonant, but I think it has a nice conversation with your own. Uh, but I wanted to bring up another book that I think. Uh, I felt like you were in conversation with Isabel Wilkerson's book Caste, which describes how the function of India's caste system is simply a transparent version of the ailment that divides people in countries across the globe. And she calls it um, uh, principally driven by ideas of divine will, bloodlines and stigma. Uh, is that a way of perceiving caste as you see it in, in your book?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to, um, I'm hesitant to, you know, to act as any kind of expert on 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 caste itself, right? Um, I am a Dalit person, but I grew up here in the U.S. I don't have the same experience of caste as somebody who grew up Dalit in India itself or, you know, as a as a Dalit Indian American worker at a tech company surrounded by other Indians, right? And so there are ways in which um, in which uh, my experience is somewhat limited. So I want to start by saying that um, uh, the reason I say that is because I think from within the Dalit community there are various perspectives on how Isabel Wilkerson um, constructs her thinking about caste. Mm-hmm. I think there's one way of thinking about it in which. Cast as it operates in India is a very unique thing, right? And it's um, and it's not a uh, and it's 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 a sort of a thing unto itself um, and can't be a metaphor for thinking about class structures elsewhere. Um, so that that criticism has been has been made. At the same time, it's it's objectively true that c- class structures like this have existed all over the world in so many ways. And so I think there's a lot. Um, about the the structure of caste that can be applied to how we think about power in general, certainly.
0: Yes, and this leads me to one of the most powerful components of the the global aspect of of your novel, and that's the idea of the shareholder society, which while not an absolute Um, analogy to the Indian caste system is doing some interesting things with the idea of both hidden and explicit hierarchies. It's positioned at first in in the book as a kind of great idealism of mutual investment in the progress of the world, but it's quickly unpacked as a technological accelerant of that which empire began, enslavement to corporate interests. The global structures of human existence are now determined by a shadowy board and King Rao's all-powerful algorithm. You write, quote, shareholder government had so fully aligned its citizens with corporate interests that no one cared to call the board out. How much of this is imagination and how much are you drawing from and, and forecasting the logical direction of late capitalism?
1: Hmm. Um, I like to think about that part of the book and sort of like that that aspect of science fictional writing in general or speculative writing in general as sort of like following one path from here into the future, and I think a pretty pretty um a, a path that's not difficult um to imagine be becoming real, you know. Um, but then there are all these other potentialities as well. And um, and, so, and so rather than saying, well, listen, if you look at where we have come from and where we are now, it's natural to say that what, what this is leading to is the world that I describe in this book in which corporate power is consolidated and we're increasingly reliant on technology that's created by the most wealthy and powerful among us. Um, uh, to codify and solidify their wealth and power um i I do think that that's a credible argument to make i don't know that i wouldn't claim i wouldn't say that the book is trying to make that argument i would say that the book is sort of presenting one potential future right um of which there are many
0: are you playing it all with i think our inherent inherent desire for more of a sense of um Common and community uh, it, that we can invest in, and and invest being a highly loaded word there, so that shareholder society in some ways apes this this desire that we have for community, both local and global, and yet ends up um, performing all these things that that do the opposite. Do you think there's something there that we're we're inherently driven towards that? that then a kind of corporate interest uses against us
1: yes and i would go even further than that and say that you know we start we as humans sort of started in community right we started within mm. um small small plans um that then became bigger and bigger as power became more and more consolidated right um and so that's the trajectory that we've taken. And I think that that has left us as humans feeling oftentimes displaced and lonely, um, geographically isolated from our, the families and communities that we were born into, um, you know, psychologically isolated by the fact that, um, you know, uh, the, the way in which we work has been so, has become so fragmented. Um, so, you know, when I want to buy a book, for example, um, I'm not walking down the street necessarily to, um, to, the, to the bookshop. I might be ordering it online. Or if I want to buy a pair of shoes, I'm not walking down the street to the home of the cobbler who's making the shoes, right? Um, uh, so we have we have we've created this situation of course we as humans have have created this new reality for ourselves Mm -hmm. and with it there's come this void that i think that we had didn't fully anticipate um and so now we've come too far to go back to the old way of doing things so now we're (laughs) we're looking for a new way for for ways to fill that void sort of using the the systems that we've That we've created that are responsible for that void and so i you know it's ironic to me i think it's really fertile material for uh for for creative work um and so that was part of what i was i was thinking about
0: yeah it seems like you're you're thinking through what a lot of sociologists have been struggling with for You know, essentially since industrialization, but probably before that, the, you know, what some uh, German scholars have called Gesellschaft and Gemeinschaft, community versus society. And you describe uh, that the defining sentiment of late capital is disaffection. Could you talk a little bit about how that um, is, how how it works in the novel, but also how you see that kind of move constantly away from the community and towards, you know, quote unquote, society creates disaffection?
1: Yes, I mean, I think we, and when I say we, I'm referring to, you know, uh, uh, Americans, that's the culture. I, I was born in Canada, I lived there till I was 10, and then since then have been in the U.S., um, I think, like we think of, of 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 people as operating on a on a pretty individual level, but in reality, we exist within community. Um, and so, when those communities are fractured and we're left um, we're left alone, I think that leads um, that leads to disaffection. Um, it leads to a sense of um, a, a kind of void and responsibility for one another, and um, and it makes it difficult to feel a sense of shared responsibility for our future as a society, um, and not just our human future, but it's sort of like the, uh, the 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 future of the of the ecosystems in which we exist. Um, and so there are real consequences, I think, of that of that disaffection. It's a it's a small world, word um, in in so in one sense, you know, it's um, it, it it feels like it refers to sort of a, a feeling, a very individualized feeling, um, and yet that feeling has has important ripple effects.
0: You could say that it explains our miserable response to COVID in the um, in the United States. I think.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: The you play with a lot with America's perhaps principal social mantra, but also its principal illusion—that idea of that within a techno-capital caste system, it is possible to uh, to to raise your social standing. And you say that that people quote believed that if they were enterprising enough, they had the same opportunities as anyone to improve their social standing. This is such a such a powerful illusion in the United States. I think it it carries on in a lot of ways globally, both in in people's perceptions of this country, but also in their own understanding of how they exist within a corporatized society. Why do you think this fiction remains so powerful? And, and why did you want it to work its way into the novel?
1: I think the fiction is powerful because um, it has been it has grown powerful because it has been deployed so effectively, I think, by those in power. You know, it has been used by those in power to divide those who don't have power, to pit them against one another. Um and it works, and so those in power continue to to use it and it becomes more powerful um, and so I wanted to um, I wanted to make that that philosophy really um, explicit in in the context of the book um, you know the way in which you know even when we as a society talk about um, talk about poor people among us um, you know, like there's this tendency, this, this, this desire to say poor people are very hardworking. poor people may be harder working than rich people, right. As if, um, the, the fact of working hard is, is the most important thing when in reality, you know, our, our shared humanity, um, uh, should be the reason that people have access to basic services that, you know, we're all taken care of, that the world is taken care of. And so I wanted to, um, see what would happen, I guess, if you sort of pressed on that notion even more um, and presented to people uh, this, you know, this framework in which um, you, you said, listen, as long as you work hard enough, like you should be able to get ahead just as much as the next guy. It's what we already say, but I wanted to kind of like formalize that somehow.
0: Late capitalism's speed of corporatization is driven more and more by technological tools. In the US, we see how the algorithms of social media companies drive our purchasing and our self-conception. King Rao's algorithm, which comes to dominate most world commerce, automatically extracts what each citizen owes to the shareholder society. What role did your work as a technology um, technology reporter play in this vision of our uh, techno corporatized future?
1: It played a significant role. Um, You know, it's like in Silicon Valley, this language of techno utopianism is still so um, persistent, so prevalent. Is it still
0: today? That's amazing. It really (laughs) is
1: still. um, And, um, and, You know, in some ways, it's like a socially, you you see a lot of pushback against it, you know, in in the press or on social media or in conversations with friends. But the people who believe that remain some of the most powerful, some of the wealthiest people in the world. And so these ideas are still getting funded. Um, I was seeing, I see in my reporting uh, the kinds of versions of the kinds of technologies that, that appear in the novel, they're just not as far along as they are in the novel. You know, the use of facial recognition software in policing, for example, or um, or the use of AI in trying to figure out whether kids are cheating on their tests at school, right? Um, the use of next door and, um, and ring doorbells on the door to... Um, you know, track who's showing up and stealing your packages on your doorstep. These kinds of things are already prevalent in our society. And we don't think of them as necessarily um, as being sort of like the, the tools of oppression that they that they are and as being as insidious as they are. But, you know, all of all of that is already here. And so it didn't seem to be that much of a leap to, you know, imagine what that might look like 10 or 20 years in the future if it continues at this rate.
0: I am shocked by how quickly Ring and its like have been adopted as this supposed kind of personal safety uh, surveillance because it just seems so ripped from <laughs> ripped from every a uh, techno dystopian novel you can imagine, and and there's so much at, even in its infancy about how it's used to surveil people of color, even outside of the intentions of the the owners of said ring.
1: Right. Yeah. I know. I agree.
0: The one of the things that I think is is wonderful about your novel and is a is quite a balancing act is how it manages both to treat place quite locally with beautiful descriptions of you know a fecund delta and a coconut farm but also these larger pulled back visions of how the interactions that that have uh, run globalization for quite a long time now, can can be visible with this broader view. How was it to use the novelistic eye to both kind of pull in tight to these very specific places, but also um, pull back and give us this wider view?
1: I found it really difficult. Um, I mean, think one of the reasons it took me so long to write the book, um, and um, and I'm glad you found it successful. You know, I I think we think of novels of ideas or social novels as um, as sometimes sort of like operating um, in in sort of like non. Um, non domestic spheres, right. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And, um, and I think, again, maybe, maybe, especially being a female writer, being a female writer of color, uh, being a female writer of color, who's a parent, um, and and a child and a sibling, all of these things, um, makes me very interested in family and the relationship between family and capitalism, and then also the relationship between community and capitalism, as we were discussing earlier. And so, I wanted to figure out how to show like the inextricability of place with all of that because, um, because family and community is so grounded in, in a sense of geographic place. Um, so that was, that was a sort of intellectual goal in, in having that on the page. Um, and then it was a real balancing act, as you say, like trying to figure out how to, how to do that while also sort of um talking more broadly about uh, on a kind of conceptual level and um, I don't know how much I have to say about that that's that's particularly insightful except to say that like I just I, I went through many drafts of doing you know doing it and redoing it and redoing it to, to try to figure out how, to, how that all could fit together
0: it's it's very impressive because it's not often that an author can can balance the two as you say and sometimes it ends up that the the descriptions of local place feel uh, feel not true to form, um, and that the sort of global consumes it, and and that's not at all the case. In fact, if you were to just read maybe the first, I don't know, quarter or or third of the Immortal King Rao, you might think that it was very much a kind of localized, quite tightly hewn to a particular area in in India. But as as we go on, we get the United States, similarly textured, and then these kind of pulled back views. So I I was very impressed by that aspect of the novel.
1: Oh, thank Uh, you, Chris. Thanks for saying that.
0: Before I let you go, I would love to know what it is you're reading right now. What's, you know, calling you from your bedside table that you can't wait to start or finish?
1: Yes. um, I'll mention two books. I'll read, I'll mention the book that I I'm just getting toward the end is end of, um, we're living, my family and I are living in Madrid, Spain for a year. And, um, I'm reading this book, um, a heart.
0: So are you white. already there or are you we're
1: already there? Oh, yeah. you are.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah.
1: Um, so I'm reading this Javier Maria's book called a heart so white. I don't know if you know it, but, um, it's I the love Maria's. That I read. Yeah. I, so tell me what else you recommend, because this is my first and I loved it.
0: The trilogy, the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy, is incredible, and it is just such a... A fierce and at times very frightening, but also beautiful and mysterious. Quite, they're quite long, um, and there are three of them, and they're all very, very good. His his most recent one, translated in English, which the title I don't remember, is is like many of his. There's these sort of genre elements, like a spy novel, um, kind of woven into what are really like sophisticated character portraits, and his most recent one is is very much like that
1: another book that i would like to recommend is a book called all this could be different by the writer sarah thuncombe matthews um and i read it a while ago before it came out but it just came out on august 2nd so uh, about a month ago and um it's so good it's very different from my book um they both in, are in some ways about capitalism i would say but this book is about the sort of like you know, 20 something late capitalist, late capitalism experience. Um, it's, you know, these kids in their 20s living in Milwaukee, trying to make their way. And it's just like the voice is so great. That's what I like about it. Um, the, the it's got like this, this really brilliant voice.
0: She is uh, two interviews away for me. And I, I as well love that uh that novel and think the, oh that's great. and think the voice is is really one of a kind
1: yes i agree oh that's so funny i'm glad to i'm glad to hear that i love yeah i love the book too
0: Well, thank you so much for these recommendations, Wahini. These are 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 lovely, and I want to you know always shout out Marias, and so that he has more American readers. But it was such a pleasure speaking with you and getting to talk about your fabulous book. Everyone needs to run out and get The Immortal King Rao, and you will not be disappointed.
1: Thank you, Chris. It was such a good interview. I really appreciate your questions.
0: Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Wahini Vara for a wonderful conversation about her debut, The Immortal King Rao. That title and all of Wahini's recommendations are linked for purchase from independent booksellers on the website burnedbybooks.com. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.